Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture. We are a non-profit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This presentation and many others are available through our online library at instituteofcatholicculture.org and on our ICC app. Please view our upcoming schedule of live online events and engage with us on social media. For handouts, links, and further study materials, please visit this program's page on our website or app. Our speaker this evening received a PhD in philosophy from the Catholic University of America in 1997, a third order lay Dominican. He's a professor of philosophy at Christendom College, where he has taught for more than 25 years. Dr. John Cutterback writes and lectures on various topics, including virtue, fatherhood, friendship, and household, and his professional writings appear in various academic journals and books. His popular book, True Friendship, Where Virtue Becomes Happiness, was recently republished by Ignatius Press. His blogging at life-craft.org, where he offers weekly reflections and courses on the household, is known for applying ancient wisdom to life today. He is, of course, a frequent speaker for the ICC, having taught our Philosophy 101 and 102 courses, as well as one of our Magdala Apostolate professors. So please join me in welcoming back Dr. John Cutterback. Welcome, Doctor. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Annie. Great to be with you. And uh, we have a wonderful, wonderful topic before us tonight. So again, with with gratitude, I'm going to, uh, Father, if you stick around a little bit, I'm going to say something about the the amazing titles that always I'm, end up. I'm um, certainly with you. That we end up end up having. But I, I just want to first say the focus of the lecture is going to be pretty narrow. This is such a fabulous topic, Unshakable Foundations, Boethius, and the Scandal of Bad Fortune. It's I started to hyperventilate thinking, ah, uh, you know, what, what are we going to cover? And, you know, background on Boethius and all the amazing things that Boethius does. And just this great question of divine providence and how it fits with with fortune. How, how do we sort these things out? So sorry, I'm hyperventilating right now. I just want you to know I finally I'm starting to learn after after all this time teaching that trying to do too much is always a no-no. And as Bishop Sheen once memorably said, I'd rather people have said, oh, he's already ended, then he had three good places to end that lecture. So we try to keep things you know, focused and not try to do too much. So I'm going to let you look up the background on Boethius and Constellation of Philosophy if you haven't already done a little studying there, although, of course, so the ICC has already done so much, and there's things the great Anthony Esselin's been doing on the Constellation of Philosophy. So please take advantage of those resources the ICC already has. This much I will say about Boethius. He is qualified to talk about the scandal of bad fortune by two main things. He was extremely holy and indeed a saint, and he had a whole heap of bad fortune. So those two things together put him in a very unique position to have been able to have a unique angle of insight and write one of the works that is one of the great masterpieces of Western civilization, 
and on this topic, among others, of divine providence, how it fits with the question, the ancient, the great ancient question of what is fortune? Does fortune rule our lives? I'm going to begin in a funny kind of way, and that's with the first two quotations, uh, both of which have jumped out at me of late, and I just want to start with them on this amazing topic that we have before us. The first one is I actually got from St. Thomas Aquinas's golden chain, Catena Aurea, which I highly recommend. There's the to getting his, it's the Catena Aurea or golden chain is where he just links together. That's why it's called a chain of the commentaries of various and sundry fathers of the church on all four gospels. He did one for all four of the gospels every single chapter of the four gospels he goes through and he chose his favorite commentaries of the fathers and put it in there. So on Luke 12, 45, he has the following to say, and it had to do with a, a servant not knowing when the master was going to return. And St. Bede said the following, there's nothing then better than to submit patiently to be ignorant of that which cannot be known, but to strive only that we be found worthy. In context, you don't have to know, but the context was there's so many things that the Lord chooses that we not know. For instance, a very big one, when will he, our master, return? It's not fitting that we know. We thus, we need to be willing to accept that. And Bede reflects there's nothing then better than to submit patiently to be ignorant of that which cannot be known. Why am I saying that to you right now? There's so many things about the notion of divine providence, about the concrete ways the divine providence unfolds in our life that we will not understand. And there's nothing better, suggests St. Bede, than to submit patiently to be ignorant of that which cannot be known. Second quotation is, and I'm going to give you a few from St. Thomas's commentary on the book of Job, too seldom referred to. The book of Job is the great biblical book that is about this question the Boethius takes up. Talk about a man who, like Boethius, was holy and had experience that is unfolded before us of the changing of fortune. It's Job. And St. Thomas has a beautiful commentary on it. And here, at the very end of the book, he is explaining the disposition of Job towards God after he's gone through all that he's gone through and learned much and been shown to be faithful. St. Thomas, as it were, puts these words in Job's mouth, speaking to God. Because I have spoken about things which exceed my knowledge, meaning earlier on, he said certain things that he shouldn't have. Because I've spoken about things which exceed my knowledge, from now on, I do not dare to speak about those things, but only to ask you about them. I wanted to start our reflection here on these very deep matters in the spirit of Job, 
of never demanding, as it were, of God to understand more than it is our place to understand, and especially to approach these deep and delicate matters with a sense of, but I will do this. I will ask you, Lord. I will keep asking you, please help me. And I know that you will share with me what insight it is fitting for me to have. Say something now about the about the uh, uh, title. I, I see these titles. It's fun. Father has a gift with titles, and and, and I, he gathers around him others who have gifts with titles. So it's always fun trying to figure out what, what something's going to be called. And so this one, Unshakable Foundations. I don't remember exactly how that title was come up. I'm sure it was the fertile, great imagination of some ICC wizard here. And so I then, when I have that that title, it, it obviously it's this kind of discernment together, but then I take that and I say, okay, hmm. All right, so how am I going to think about that? And as I was going about my way and something really struck me. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to front load this presentation and tell you right here and now what I want you to take away from it. If there's one thing in view of our title, Unshakable Foundations, Boethius, and the Scandal of Bad Fortune, if there's one key takeaway is that there is an unshakable foundation that we all have. And I went through my mind, I thought, well, there's different ways you could put that. A couple of candidates for how I might try to sum that up was maybe God's providence is always in charge, or God's providence oversees all, or the plan of nature is good, and what is natural is not in vain, and what is supernatural fulfills what's natural. It's all kinds of things we might have said was a kind of unshakable foundation. But there's something else that I'd want to go with, and that is this. This is your and my unshakable foundation, that we have a father, and our father is the God of the universe. That is the unshakable foundation of our life, and we need no other one. We have a father. Those of us who are fathers have had occasion, perhaps, to reflect upon the reality of what it is to be a father and how to the extent that we step up to what it is, we bend all of our energy to bring about their good. It is always about them. They are our joy. And that gives us just a little insight into God's attitude towards us. If this is really true, this is what we always go back to. This is the unshakable foundation. In a sense, absolutely everything that St. Boethius or anyone else could say about divine providence and how it oversees everything is well captured and exceeded in saying he is always, always a father. And just one particular aspect of that that will come out very much here, that again, those who've had some experience with fatherhood certainly have seen how often is it not part in God's great plan, a part of fatherhood is that those that we are fathering do not understand. It will not be given to them at this point to understand. 
but we do what must be done. And if there's one thing that's sure, that's what God does with us. That's what's always, always going on. Let's set up the problem now of this scandal of bad fortune. What is the problem, especially the Boethius wants us to look at? It's very much going on in the book of Job here. And I want to look at three quotations, three, four, and five on your, on your handout, which I will read out loud. The first here is our first quotation from Boethius. This is where the, the, the at the very beginning, Boethius is, as it were, um, complaining before God, and in this case to, to lady philosophy, only human deeds you disdain to what well, this is directly to God, only human deeds you disdain to rein in, in the way they deserve you, their helmsman. So it is, why can slippery fortune cause such change and sport? This is, by the way, in the poem. That's why it's a little bit funny meter. Hard punishment due for the breach of the law quashes the guiltless, degenerate ways on a lofty throne, crush beneath their heel the necks of the good in horrid reversal. So context of the beginning of that quotation, only human deeds you disdain to rein in. That, that's in the context of saying, you, you govern everything else. It seems so well, Lord, you know, the, the trees and the birds and the movement of the stars, everything. They all obey your commands. They all are just following divine providence and look at the order of the universe. But then when it comes to human life, things seem to go crazy. Human deeds, you seem to disdain to actually rein in, in the way they deserve. You, their helmsman. What's going on? So it is why can slippery fortune cause such change in sport? Isn't God supposed to be in charge, not seemingly fortune? Hard punishment quashes the guiltless. <laughs> Shouldn't hard punishment be quashing the guilty, not the guiltless? Degenerate ways are on a lofty throne. People having great authority over us might themselves be quite degenerate. Examples need not be offered. This happens all around. Go on to quotation number four. This is St. Thomas Aquinas in his commentary on Job right at the beginning. Rather straightforward. He's putting this same question, issue in his own way here, not in a poetic way. For good things do not always befall the good, nor evil things the wicked. On the other hand, evil things do not always befall the good, nor good things the wicked. But good and evil indifferently befall both the good and the wicked. This fact then especially moves the hearts of men to hold the opinion that human affairs are not governed by divine providence. And this is true. I mean, isn't it? When people see these things, they say, how could there be a God overseeing this? This is very common, common theoretically in, in, in people. It's also you know, kind of very, I mean, what I mean by theoretically, when they're doing kind of philosophy or theology or, you know, holding forth on the, on, 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 uh, the first principles of the, gov of the universe, but then also very much concretely in our own lives. Doesn't this tend to show up also that when push comes to shove, don't we also then kind of start to doubt this Fact then, again, especially moved the hearts of men to hold the opinion that human affairs are not governed by divine providence. He goes on, this idea causes a great deal of harm to mankind. For if divine providence is denied, 
no reverence or true fear of God will remain among men. We have before us a very serious issue. And Boethius, now St. Thomas Aquinas, have raised one more line from Boethius in raising it. But that the designs that the lawless entertain, bad people, are powerful against innocence. While God is watching over it, this is like some monstrosity. Particularly, depending on our own personal histories and things we've seen in our life, such a thing can be an extremely present and powerful thing for us. Today, I just want to share in class, people just got back, my students at the college just got back from spring break, and a number of them go on a spring mission trip. And they often go south of the border to various places. And I asked them to just share something briefly that they saw. And I just want to share one thing. I'm all, Through the years, I always get very interesting images. And, and here's an image that was given to me today. And it took my breath away. Some of them said, oh, well, while we were there in Guadalajara, we went to a boy's orphanage. An orphanage where there were 2,000 orphan boys overseen by six to eight religious women. God bless those women. It took my breath away. 2,000 boys. Do they know they have a father? Life can be astoundingly difficult. Those 2,000 little boys. I've been in my thoughts all day long. These are real things. I'm not going to try to give some type of complete answer to the problem that has been raised here. I'm going to share some reflections. I'm not going to call it answer. I'm going to give some reflections. In quotations number six and seven, give some basic principles that will be behind, I think, all of the reflections and really any reasonable approach to this. There's a lot right here in these two beautiful points of question, quotation six and seven. Six is again from St. Thomas in his commentary on Job, and he's going to quote the line from St. Paul in scripture that have perhaps has already come into your mind. Now it happens, says St. Thomas, that God sometimes permits trials or even some spiritual defects to happen to some to obtain their salvation. As Romans says, quote, all things work together for the good of those who love God. In this way, God comes to man to obtain his salvation, and yet man does not see him because he cannot perceive his kindness. What an astounding line. In this way, in the various aspects, even the profoundly difficult ones. In this way, God comes to man to obtain his salvation, and yet man does not see him because he cannot perceive his kindness. On the contrary, God does not take away his manifest gifts from many men, and yet they turn them to their own destruction. So, so he's saying here, those that to work their salvation, he does take away certain things from them, because he's trying to help by the, as it were, rough treatment. But he's saying that so often we don't perceive that 
kindness of the father that is doing it. On the contrary, then there's others where he does not take away the gifts and kind of, as it were, give that rougher treatment. And yet they turn them to their own destruction, as it were, the gifts that he left with them and did not take away from them. They turn those to their destruction, not saying universally, but on the contrary, this often happens. So God is said to go away from man in the sense that man does not understand his going away. This is very, very rich. In, in, in short, sure, it can seem like God's going away. God's taking something away. And in some sense, he is. But it's a going away, a taking away for the sake of a closer coming. Always. Therefore, the depth of divine wisdom appears in the dispensation of his gifts. There's just so much. And again, it's not going to be ours to try to unfold all, all the meaning. I'm just giving you this saints here, St. Thomas, his approach rooted in Romans. Always have confidence as where he's always a father. And very often we won't be able to see. I go on, quotation number seven, likewise from St. Thomas. He provides his benefits so deeply and with such finesse for his subjects that it cannot be grasped even by those who receive them. He provides his benefits so deeply and with such finesse for his subjects that it cannot be grasped even by those who receive them. I understand you might say, well, shouldn't, shouldn't God figure that out? And honestly, that's where I'm going to go back to my opening quotations. No, I think it's for me to figure out God's being a daddy. And it's my place to discern that. Let's do our best to try and see a little better. What can bad fortune teach us? Bad fortune, bad fate. That's now my focus. What can bad fortune teach us? It seems to be a scandal. Why is there bad fortune? Why do such bad things happen even to good people, right? There's our focus. What is my approach? I've already given you the general approach specifically now. What I'm going to say is there's three main things that I'm going to suggest, not in any way as exhaustive, but three main things I'm going to focus on that bad fortune does for man, especially in the form of teaching us. Three things that bad fortune will do for us that we especially can learn from bad fortune and realize then that it is a gift. Before I do so, before I look at each of those three briefly in turn, what is bad fortune or bad fate? By, to be clear, what I mean by it is this, any term of events, any situation that takes away goods that can be taken away by exterior forces. Anything that can be taken away by exterior forces is a matter that fortune or fate can take away. So what we'll call bad fate or bad fortune is any turn of events, any situation that takes away goods that can be taken, we could just say that can be taken away from us. They can be taken away by exterior forces. Bad health, catastrophic health, financial stress, financial ruin, natural disaster, loss of job, 
betrayal, even by those you never thought would, death of anyone around us, neighbors, friends, children, spouse. All of these things could be considered to be bad fortune, especially if their timing seems, from our viewpoint, unfitting. What can bad fortune, and the examples are countless, what can it do for us? I focus on what it can teach us, and I choose three. The three are this, a key insight about the goods of fortune themselves and human happiness. So three things. First, a key insight about the goods of fortune and human happiness. Second, can give proof of character or virtue to ourself and to others. Give proof of character or virtue to ourself and to others. And thirdly, reveal, as well as solidify, friendship. Reveal, as well as solidify, friendship. And all in each of these, there's fundamentally a teaching, a revelation aspect going on. Not just that, there's also a, perhaps a firming up and a developing of character, but I'm emphasizing the teaching. So we go start with number one. So a key insight about the goods of fortune, human happiness. Well, I'm going to read several quotations in a row under number eight. We're, going to, we're not going to get bogged down in this. This is profoundly rich, and we're going to hit what we can here and take out the jewels. So quotations under number eight, all having to do with what can insight, can we get about what fortune is and then what, what human happiness is from bad fortune happening to us? First quotation, for the condition of mortal goods is a fretful thing. And by their nature, they are neither completely beneficent nor perpetually present. For the condition of mortal goods, and, and can all these things that we've spoken of, including even the life of our loved ones, it is a mortal good. So all of these things, by their nature, they are neither completely beneficent nor perpetually present. But if they're always there, ladies and gentlemen, then we will tend to not recognize that truth about them. I go on to the next quotation. What the nature of things has caused to be external to you, fortune will never cause to be your own. This is just pointing again to this aspect of recognizing what is ours or not. Here, it's kind of saying good fortune, which shortly we're going to hear him say, interestingly enough, is in many ways more dangerous to the human soul than bad fortune is. Good fortune can't make something be your own. It's not intrinsically your own. All of these goods are not your own. Again, when good fortune gives them to us, it can seem like they're ours, Bad fortune is going to correct that misapprehension. I'm on the second side, continuing the quotations under number eight. If the things whose loss you complain of had ever been yours, 
there would have been no way you could have lost them. <laughs> St. Augustine, who is just prior to St. Boethius, was very strong on this also. Here is an astounding way of seeing the nobility, the dignity of the human person. What's yours in the most important and essential sense can never be taken from you, period. You could give it away, but it can never be taken from you. If something has been taken from you, it wasn't yours really in the first place. I know. This includes even the life of our loved ones. Yes, they are given to us. But in what sense are they given to us? One more quotation there, a couple more. Mortal men, why do you mortals look outside yourselves for the happiness that has been placed within you? Miscalculation and lack of awareness have dazed you all. So where are we looking for happiness? We see here this aspect of the, and it's going to come out more, the incredible danger, the incredible danger of, quote, good fortune, the temptation to make the dramatic mistake of misplacing our happiness, of misunderstanding what actually fulfills our heart or not. I go on to the next quotation. You see, I think that adverse fortune does more good for mortals than favorable fortune does. The latter, get a load of this sentence, guy. listen carefully. The latter, favorable fortune in the guise of happiness always lies when she seems to be sweet talking. The former, adverse fortune, bad fortune, is always true. When she reveals her instability by her ability to change. Bad fortune, he's suggesting, is speaking a very important truth. It's always speaking a truth. These things weren't yours. And by the way, they wouldn't make you happy anyway. And if you thought they did, you were wrong, is what's being said. Whereas what's adverse fortune doing? It's sweet talking you. Isn't this great? Isn't it great having all this, all, all these wonderful things? There's nothing wrong with these things, is it? All these, all, all these things are going so well. My wealth, my relationships, the honor I receive, a whole set of things. That, that, that These goods, there's nothing wrong with them. They're not evils, they're goods. But they're goods, they're subject to fortune, and they're not the ones that constitute our happiness. They have their place, but they're not what make us happy. I end this section with this rather... Strong statement from St. Thomas in his commentary on Job, man's evil consists in the fact that after he has abandoned the spiritual goods to which he is ordered according to a mind endowed with reason, he clings, key verb, clings in Latin, it's inheres to earthly goods, which befit him according to his earthly flesh. There's much here, we're not going to be able to fully unfold it, but this is classic St. Thomas. 
Aquinas and here St. Thomas is a student of Boethius. And so in times we're going to go to St. Thomas to get, as it were, the stronger, the kind of the fuller expression of it. So this, this cleaving, this clinging, this inhering in material goods, the, the, the goods of fortune, these things that, that good fortune can give to us. And that when we have the great danger is that we will overvalue them, over desire them. Our hearts will be attached to them in such a way way that we will cling or cleave to them. What is cling or cleaving? I'd say it's a, it's a kind of disordered affection. It's a disordered affection. What is the, what is the ordered affection? This is again, a very St. Augustine is a very St. Thomas. This is a, this is a very, very important point. Any desire for lower goods is disordered. If that desire is not rooted in and springing from a desire for higher things. That's one of the most philosophical slash theological slash challenging thing that I'm going to say to you here this evening. Any desire for lower things, good things, lower things that's not rooted in springing from a desire for higher things is a disordered desire, and it will take the form of a kind of cleaving and a clinging, and you see it in experience. You can feel it, the way that we cling kind of nervously to these things with this kind of fear. We're full of kind of fears that we might lose them. If we have a fear that we might lose things that aren't ours, that we don't have control over whether we lose them or not, we are clinging to them. Our desire for them has a disorder. Boy, life is challenging, isn't it? I mean, this is, you couldn't make this stuff up. You know, Christianity is not for the faint of heart, but it's astoundingly beautiful. All right. So this transitions nicely into quotation number nine, where he he quickly, and by the way, that's one of the three. I'm spending more time on the two and three. We'll go much more quickly. There's a quick corollary in his distinction between need and want. It's such a little gem in him here. I just can't pass it up. And I give you quotation number nine. Boethius makes a big point of this. It's a big theme in St. Thomas Aquinas too. I love this theme. It is so apropos for today and fits with everything we've just been saying. Quote from Boethius, quotation number nine. But if you only want to fill your need up again, and that is what is enough for nature's needs, then there's no reason for you to beg for the abundance of fortune. That's what we're almost all doing it, aren't we? We want good fortune to bless us with, 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 with so much because we're looking for what we want and we're not willing to be satisfied with what we need. For nature is satisfied, it goes on with things few in number and very small in extent. And if you try to overwhelm nature's simple satisfaction with superfluous things, you'll find that what you pour over it will be either disagreeable or actually poisonous. The distinction between how much we need versus how much we want. We need to be aware of the danger of seeking more than we need. The key here is not, hey, the the warning is, watch out, God might take it from you. The warning is much richer than that, and much more important than that. The graver danger is that we'll actually think that that's what we need or what's going to make us happy. 
That's the warning against seeking too much. It's not, be careful, God might take it away from you. In some sense, in this context, it might sound a, a bit much, but it will be maybe be a blessing. That's not a danger that he might take it from, from us. That might be a blessing. Beware the danger of favorable fortune. She's a sweet talker. Second point that we learn, proves something to ourself, proves something to others. Beautiful number 10, number 11 here. I love this. Number 10, quotation. This is from a different quotation, this is a translation than the one. It was a tough text. I've checked with others on, I think this translation is a good one here of quotation number 10. Really, the misfortunes which are now such a cause of grief ought to be reasons for tranquility. For now she has deserted you. And no man can ever be secure until he has been forsaken by fortune. No man can ever be secure until he has been forsaken by fortune. Now, you got to take this maybe with a little bit of a grain of salt. Look, in God's great providence, I mean, obviously, all of us are going to be forsaken by fortune to some extent. Maybe not in in the larger ways. That's just part of the situation. We might think to ourselves, again, I know this is, I mean, I'm saying this as though, well, well, here it is, this and this obvious, I mean, this is such hard stuff, but we're getting a basis for realizing, hey, if we're one of those ones that actually get the bigger forsaking, that might just actually be the greater gift. When, you, when we've experienced that forsakenness, the being forsaken by good fortune, we have an opportunity to show something, to learn something. At the same time, as you might say, is develop something about ourselves. Now we know. And in a sense, you couldn't ever have known in the same way in any case until you know this way. And what a gift. That revelation to ourselves, a kind of showing from a certain testing that God was pleased to share with us and show to us something about ourselves and then to others. What a gift it is, the witness. What a great thing to remember and to help for in a position to be helping those who are suffering, faithful souls who are suffering. The astounding witness, the utterly unique witness that they can be. I give you this second quotation there under number 10. When it's been said already, it is clear that the cause, that means the final cause, of the adversity of blessed Job was that his virtue should be made clear to all. In St. Thomas Aquinas' judgment, looking at the book of Job, what especially was God looking to do there, especially God wanted to manifest to many what a virtuous man is like and what more powerful way than to show them Job, who remains faithful. And dare I even go further? This really struck me in, in thinking about this. If we look again at the conversation of God and the evil one at the beginning of Job, I'll stand corrected by the theologians if it's inappropriate for me to say this, but I, I, I want to say, dare, dare I say, you have the sense of God being a proud father. When he says to Satan, you don't know my son. 
And when you see my son for who he is, you will stand in awe because he's faithful. God deserves such a son. And we have the gift of Job and others like him who have shown what a son is like. Would we have seen that if they had not had the bad fortune that they had? Third point, God reveals and solidifies friendships. (laughs) What a topic. What a reality. When else is friendship shown so clearly for what it is? When a friend realizes, even now, you stay with me. Quotation number 11. This bitter fortune has revealed the minds of the friends that are still loyal to you. This was the fortune that separated those whose faces were ever towards you from those who temporized. In other words, those who were just with you because of miscellaneous things that happens to be pleasant about being your friends. Go on, (laughs) complain about the wealth and resources that you've lost, as of course is directed at Boethius by Lady Philosophy. You have found what is the most valuable kind of riches, your friends. And you, Boethius, are going to complain to me about your bad fortune. When this bad fortune has clarified your friendships. That was just a snapshot of three things in our reflecting upon what can bad fortune do for us through the eyes of Boethius with some help from St. Thomas Aquinas. I want to end where I began. Remember Job through the eyes of St. Thomas, he said, I do not dare to speak about such things, but only to ask you about them. So perhaps we, in that spirit, might turn to our Heavenly Father and ask him to help us see. And this prayer, which is quotation number 12, is from the Consolation of Philosophy, and it is a prayer to the Heavenly Father. Grant to the mind, Father that it may rise to your holy foundations, grant it may ring round the source of the good, may discover the true light, and fix the soul's vision firmly on you, vision keen and clear-sighted, scatter these shadows, dissolve the dead weight of this earthly concretion, shine in the splendor that is yours alone, only you are the bright sky, you are serenity, peace for the holy. Their goal is to see you. You are their source, their conveyance, their leader, their path, and their haven. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So thank you for thank you for listening. I turn it over to you, Annie. Wow. Thank you so much, Dr. Cutterback. What a You're beautiful welcome. reflection on this incredible piece of work by Boethius, The Constellation of Philosophy. Very much appreciated, Doc. Thank you. Thank you very much. Dr. Cutterback, you ready for some questions? Let's give it a whirl. All right. So first of all, Dr. Cutterback, what role could voluntary penance play in giving us a proper perspective on fortune, whether it be good or bad? That's a great question. Amen. A a great role. Uh, um, Because voluntary penance has a number of fruits, but let's look at it precisely through this, through this angle. 
we might say in the, in the spirit of some of the points made, we can, we're trying to learn, we're trying to recognize the true place of the lower goods and their relative non-importance, though in God's great plan, we need to have material goods and so forth. This is obviously the case, but to voluntarily give up certain things is a way of having that same kind of effect. And so I think that's what the person asking the question kind of intuitively saw. And I just want to just, just sign off and say, check, right? That's so it's like by bad fortune, we could have had our foods taken away from us. But now we voluntarily do penance where we set aside the food that otherwise is here in plenty, but we're but we're setting it aside. Bad fortune might bring it about that we have some great bodily pains. When that's the case, then we accept that. And by the way, I think an important thing to see here is, and I say this in this context, we don't seek bad fortune. We never seek bad fortune. If if bad fortune comes, we accept it. I, I want to point out right here that St. Thomas points out, always subtle, always trying to sort the things out. Fundamentally, he says that the lower gifts too. God wants us to have. God's intention towards us is, is ultimately that we be able to have the panoply of goods. But if you will, I'm just going to just take just another quick moment to say, but there's the danger, especially since the fall, of we get things out of order. And I go back to remember what I said was the key philosophical theological point that our desire for lower things should be rooted in and flowing from our desire from higher of for higher things when that's the case as it will be completely so in heaven as it is here on earth to see some a large extent in the saints then you can enjoy all those goods at one time in a sense that's what the end of the book of job some sense shows us you get these things back but you know job's never going to forget his lesson and job is never going to treat as his what isn't his and he's always going to keep the hierarchy by the grace of god right so this is what we're always striving for and so doing penance helps us get that hierarchy straight Thanks for the question. Here's another one kind of related. How should we handle times of good fortune if it's so dangerous? St. Thomas in one of his beautiful prayers says, says something to the effect of, Lord, may I not be carried away by good, by good fortune. May I not, what's the word? I can't remember exactly, kind of feel oppressed or be dragged down by bad fortune. And there's this sense of kind of you know, holiness. There's a kind of equanimity. Good fortune. It, it, I go back to the point because it's always the, the root of the point that I just made. To the extent that our desires are becoming rectified, becoming well-ordered, we are able to accept good fortune for what it is. And so even you and I, who don't yet have rectified desires, when we have good fortune, I'd say there's a lot that might be said that we might we might say, oh, this is a moment for us to give much away. It might be a, a, a case for us to be kind of careful or, or, of course, always reasonably restrained. But at the same time, we, we can say, ah, you know, praise the Lord. Thank you for these wonderful gifts here that are being given to us, Lord. Help me to love them rightly. 
that's what I'm trying to do. And here I am, I'm going to rejoice in them, right? This is not a kind of puritanism. We're not going to be afraid of good things. We're going to rejoice in them. So always recognizing that good fortune, um, to, if we're not watching, she'll be a sweet talker. She would carry us away if we're not firmly grounded in remembering the hierarchy and immediately going to God in gratitude and receiving them for what they are at the same time, recognizing that we don't need them. Right. So, so to be conscious of all this is so my, my, in short, what's my answer to the question? No, don't be afraid of good fortune. Be aware in good fortune and bear in mind the principles with confidence that we're saying. And we smile and we look at the Lord and say, Lord, help me here. Help me to use this well. And you're going to give me the power to do it. And I trust in you. Thank you. Did you say gratitude is an important part of that? that, that you, you plucked out a real it, Gratitude is absolutely central. I always love to, I love, always love to quote my father-in-law. One of the central things he said to my wife and me when early on in our parenting, we, it, it, particularly since my wife has this gift of showering um, love and including showing that love in so many ways to the children. And we said to my father-in-law, God rest his soul. We said, what, what should we do to try to make sure that our, our, our children don't become overly attached to these things that, that we, as it were, that we shower upon them? Is, is that going to possibly spoil them? In the ever memorable words, he said, if you teach them to be grateful, they will never be spoiled. Mm. Gratitude, gratitude, gratitude. And of course, that's that very much is in play here. Thank you, Annie. It's really beautiful. Um, Kathy asks, Dr. Cutterback, can we still experience and recognize the benefits of bad fortune that you mentioned, yet still grieve our loss in a virtuous way? Great, great. Yes. I love I love questions that show that people are like already there. And everybody feels that, right? And that that's a great question. And 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 and, and Yes. And here, given the, the panoply of things that we included, some of them will have much more grief right, than others. I mean, the passing of great wealth, particularly if one was using it well, I mean, one being using one's wealth well, and, and now it's gone. There's a genuine sorrow in that. It's a genuine sorrow there. I mean, a fortiori in the taking away of other things when there's betrayal. And of course, when there's death, right? These goods that are being taken away from us by our saying they're not ours is not saying that God doesn't want to ultimately share them with us. He does ultimately want to share them with us in the right context as we're when we are frankly ready to be able to really enjoy them. And that's the thing. But I might simply say this, God is bending all of his energy to make us capable of enjoying things, of enjoying everything that he wants us to enjoy. If he's taking away things from us, it's part of exercising us so that we can enjoy them. And so obviously there is a place for genuine sorrow. And we know that you know this particularly shows up in death where you have kind of saints saying things that seem to contradict uh, one another, but they're not like, well, how, how, why are you sorrowing so much? Sometimes we are, we are admonished, but at the same time, of course, we're, we're sorrowing when we, and we recognize that the more ordered 
our affections, the more true will be our sorrow and righteous and reasonable. And our Lord wept. This is time for weeping. Thank you for the question. Can you say that again? The more ordered our affections, I'm writing this down. The more, uh, the um, more true, more true will be our, our sorrow. It's as a quick follow up. The virtue in Aristotle's terms, the virtuous man, he experiences pleasures and pains as he should. He suffers as no one else will ever suffer. It's just true because he. His heart is sensitive to the great things and the real sufferings that are going on. Picture, I'm sorry, I go back to the, the, uh, the, the orphan boys. I, I mean, picture Jesus walking into the orphanage. His heart and in the spirit of the talk is in the topic is, is, is tempted to say, well, why isn't he walking into the orphanage? Where is he? What do you think Mother Teresa would say to that? He's there. He's, he is there. And if we don't think that's true, we don't know Jesus. Okay, thank you. I was going to save this till the end, but since you brought up the orphanage, boys uh, wrote in asking if you know any way to contact that orphanage to be able to support them. That is a beautiful question. And um, I have been, I just learned of it this morning, and I'm going to contact the gentleman who's my dear friend at the college who was on that mission trip. And I want to say, Mike, tell me about that orphanage. So in case I will, once I learn something, I will share something with the ICC. Great. Excellent. Thank you so much. Another attendee asks, how is good or bad fortune different from fate? Or to put it another way, what is fate as to divine providence? Yeah. Well, first of all, good, good and bad fortune aren't aren't different from fate. And this is, in the sense of the great theoretical question in the constellation of philosophy. And the I'll just say, most people perhaps have had a chance to read it. But part of the thing here is one of the beautiful aspects of the presentation in the story is that it turns out that fate is actually not something different. And there's a kind of a lady fate who really is ultimately the same as lady philosophy. And so in short, the might we put it this way, the ancients referred to fate as this just kind of power that's 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 out there and you just you just kind of don't know what it's up to. Well you could say <clears throat> it's understandable that divine providence would seem to be fate when you don't understand what's going on it seems random and one of the things normally associated with fate or fortune is that it's random that it's like a wheel that's turning and it's up and down and you just and you just don't know but in reality the deeper view the deeper truth is that that turning is very much part of an, a very wise plan of divine providence. 
So, so then do you say, is it, great question, I'm glad we're able to clarify this. Is there any such thing as fate for Christianity? It's not just a simple yes or no. You want to just say, well, Christianity has done away with fate. In, some, done, in the sense of fate as being like some randomness in the universe that is outside of divine providence. Yeah, there isn't any of that. There's no such thing as that. But fate as experienced as you never know what's going to happen next. So the good or the bad going to get good or bad happening to them. Well, that's real. And that's part of divine providence. And very often it's just a matter of our perspective then. So in, in that way, but this is this is part of the masterpiece that is Boethius, bringing the ancient world and its great issues and the way that they dealt with things and just kind of bringing that issue into Christianity and having that heavenly father be the deeper solution. That's what's going on there. So that's a little more about what about fate and fortune and what they are. I think this is a good wrap up question. How can we be a witness to the goodness of God to friends who are perhaps in despair or dealing with grief in some way without dismissing their misfortune and suffering? Or in short, how do we avoid being Job's friends? Oh, yeah. This is a great set of questions. First of all, I, I always love pointing this out. And if you'll allow me to say this. And this might be something that you share with the person, depending. In God's great providence, part of this plan is that those who have suffered are in an utterly unique place to be there for the others. One of the most astoundingly beautiful aspects of this. So, so here we go. I, I love the words from a psychologist I know who said this. We cannot avoid suffering, but we can avoid suffering alone. No one should ever have to suffer alone. We should never be alone. God doesn't intend that anyone be alone. This is the, central to the beauty of Christianity. In this season of Lent, Christ's suffering, he went into the very depths. He went into the very, he plums the depths so that no one ever, ever would be able to say to him, Lord, I'm going through something that I that you're not going to be able to deal. You're not going to be able to reckon with. You're not going to be able to understand. You're not going to be able to really compassionate with. Thank God. Thank you, Lord. He suffered everything and more to a higher degree so that he could be there with us in it. So first of all, I love to be able to point out to anybody and again, sometimes you don't know, you have to pray and see, but I'm just throwing some ideas of things, some things that can be said. Might be, I, I know whether you're ready to hear this right now, but I just like to suggest you to perhaps to consider this is the moment. This is the moment now in your life when Jesus wants to be with you more than he ever has before. And I promise you, I promise you, He's with you, and he's begging for you to look into his eyes right now and go through this together with him, because that's the whole point. So that's something I think I, I think that we say, and to the extent, and, and then and then turn it around and, and add this because I think this is so powerful for someone 
one day, you, from having gone through this, one day you'll see there's going to be someone else who's going through what you're going through. And you're going to now be in the utterly unique position that you never would have been able to do before. You're going to be able to go to that person and say, I have been there and it's okay. I understand what you're saying. And I'm with you because I understand. This is an astounding gift that comes of our sufferings, knowing that whatever it is, God is going to use that one day again. He's going to show others. He it, Like another aspect of that. Sorry, I can't stop. Another aspect of that, like the way God was so proud of Job. And he wanted others to see. He want, it was always for us. He's always being the daddy. It, that He's going to use you. Your fidelity is going to save somebody. That's the way your God works. He wants you to do this. You're going to be there to do that for him. That's my thought on that, Annie. Well, don't you think the the Blessed Mother makes a perfect example for, of what you're just saying? Amen. Amen, she does. It's a fabulous point, Annie, worth much reflection. Suffering shared. Heavenly friends, earthly friends. It's hard to see it when you're in it. There's nothing like it. Yeah, I've always been struck by the fact that she never looked away from her son's suffering. She stood there with him. So he wasn't alone. Exactly. It's been a beautiful evening, Dr. Cutterback. Thank you so much. Would You're you mind welcome. closing us in prayer? Absolutely. Let us pray. In the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord, we thank you for your many, many gifts. Please, Lord, forgive our sinfulness, forgive our slothfulness, forgive our lack of seeing. Please open our eyes, open our eyes to see the gift, the gift that you're always giving. Increase our faith, Lord. We want to be more faithful. Please give us the grace to be faithful and to be a beacon to those around us, whether in good fortune or in bad fortune. Help us to receive the gifts that you're giving, especially in this Lenten season. Bless the work of the ICC. All glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this program from the Institute of Catholic Culture. Remember to download our app and share our online library with friends, co-workers, and family members. To learn more, get involved, and support the Institute's work, visit instituteofcatholicculture.org and visit us on social media.